We're thankful for mental and physical blessings, for the measure of life and health and strength that we each enjoy. We thank you for social blessings, for family and friends around us to love and care for us and support us. We're thankful for material and financial blessings. Living in this country so so richly blessed, we're so grateful. We're thankful for other blessings as well. We come to you this morning and we recognize that in addition to your great blessings, we may still have needs this morning, personal, perhaps corporate as well. And we desire, Father, that you would meet each one of those needs according to your will. We recognize your hand moving in our lives. We also come this morning, Father, regrettably acknowledging our sins. We have separated ourselves from you at times by choices and decisions that we have made, and we regret that. And this morning, we ask forgiveness for those sins, and we're grateful, Father, for the provision that Jesus has made through his death on Calvary's tree that we may be forgiven and that we have the hope of eternal life with you. We're so thankful for that. Uh, We have one specific prayer request this morning, Father, that has come to my attention, and that is that Kyle and his family traveling, Kyle has lost, misplaced his passport, and that's an unnerving situation to be in when out of your home country. So we just pray for your blessings upon Kyle and his family, that they may either find the passport or that it may be resolved that it might be uh, corrected as quickly as possible. Now, Father, we pray for the presence of your Spirit to bless us, to guide us and direct us, to enable us to set aside everything that would prevent you from communicating with us this morning as you desire. And this is our prayer this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Children, it's your time now to come and listen to a story. So we invite you to come to the front and let Jesus speak to you as well this morning. Good morning, boys and girls. There's a few more coming here, a whole entourage. (laughs) So this morning, I'm going to tell you one of my most favorite stories. And in this story is about a dad who paid a price for his little girl. And did you know that God paid the ultimate price for you? Because None of us are perfect, and Jesus was perfect. And so he gave the highest price possible for us. So my story today is about a little girl named Taya. And Taya went grocery shopping with her dad and her brother and her sister. And she would take the cart, and she she would take it up the aisle and down the aisle and up the aisle and down the aisle. She said, 
You know, my father never buys any good food. He buys milk and spinach and eggs, nothing any good. He doesn't buy chocolate bars or candy or ice cream. And so she thought, hmm. So she went off by herself and she went and grabbed a cart and said, I'm going to go get some good food. So she took her cart and she filled it with with a hundred boxes of ice cream. And she came over and said, Daddy, look! And he said, yikes! She said, Daddy, good food! And he goes, oh no, that is sugary junk. You take it back, that will rot your teeth. So she took all the ice cream back, and she meant to come right back to her dad, but she had to pass the candy aisle to get there. So then she filled her cart with 300 chocolate bars. And she said, Daddy, look! And he went, yikes! He said, that, she said, Daddy, good food. And he goes, oh no, that is sugary junk. You put it all back. So she puts it all back. And he goes, that's it, Taya. I've had enough. You stand right here and don't move. So she knew that she was in big trouble. So she didn't move. Her friends came over and said hi, but she didn't move. A man came by and ran over her toe with a cart. She still didn't move. Then a lady came by and looked her from the top to the bottom, from the bottom to the top, and said, that is the nicest looking doll I've ever seen. She knocked her on the head. She still didn't move. So she wrote out a price tag for $29.95 and stuck it on her nose. And she lifted her up and put her up on the shelf. So then a man came by and said, wow, that is the nicest looking doll I've ever seen. It looks so real. My little boy would just love that. So he went to pick her up and pulled, picked her up by her hair, and she went, stop. And he went, yikes, it's alive! And he ran down the aisle, knocking over a pile of 500 oranges. And then a few minutes later, another lady came. And she said, wow, that is the nicest looking doll I've ever seen. And so she tried to pick her up by the ear, and she said, stop! And she said, yeah, it's alive! And she ran down the aisle, knocking over a pile of 500 apples. And then her dad came along and said, Taya, 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 where are you? Taya, what are you doing on that shelf? She said, Daddy, it's all your fault. You told me not to move, and people are trying to buy me. Wah! Oh, oh, come now. It's okay, Taya. It's okay. I won't let anybody buy you. So he picks her up off the shelf, gives her a big hug, and then they go to buy their food at the cash register. The man at the cash register looks over and says, Hey, mister, you can't take that kid out of here. You have to buy her. It says so right on her nose, $29.95. He goes, wait, this is my own kid. I don't have to pay for my own kid. And he says, it has a price tag. You have to pay for it. He said, I won't pay. He said, you've got to. The father said, no. The man said, yes. The father said, no. The man said, yes. Then the father and the brother and the sister all said, no. And then quietly, Taya says, Daddy, don't you think I'm worth $29.95? Oh, well, um, of course you're worth $29.95 takes out his wallet, he pays the man, and then she reaches up and gives her daddy a big kiss, and a big hug, and she said, daddy, look, you finally bought something good after all. So then her daddy gives her a big hug, and they go home. So did God pay a, a bigger price than that father did? He paid the biggest, highest price possible. Thank you for listening to our story. You guys can go to your lamb's offering right over here.
Today's reading is found in Matthew 3:11 to 17. It says, For what I am telling you is that I merely baptize people with water, but soon one will come who has all power. I'm not even worthy to unfasten his sandals. He will baptize people in the power of the Holy Spirit and cleanse them with spiritual fire. He also will have a large fan in his hand and will use it to separate the husks from wheat, storing the wheat in his barn, then destroying the husks with real fire. About this time, Jesus came down from Galilee to hear John preach, and he asked John to baptize him. But John sensed the purity of this man, knowing that he was the Messiah. He refused to baptize Jesus and said, Jesus said, Baptize me as you baptized all the others. You won't be doing anything wrong. You will be doing what is right. Then John went ahead and baptized him. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water and knelt on the river bank to offer a prayer of thanksgiving. As he looked up, heaven itself seemed to open. Then the Holy Spirit descended from heaven in beams of light which shaped themselves in the form of a dove and hovered over his head. And a voice said from heaven, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Happy Sabbath. You know, I was telling the guys on the way in, summer came late to the party and left early, didn't it? Goodness. I like to bike in the summertime and sure did have that enjoyment cut short because it's not as fun when it's cold. But God is still good, isn't he? We can still come into the house of the Lord and worship and enjoy each other's fellowship and our life. Uh, you know, last week, as just a review, uh, this today I just want to welcome you to part two of Glorifying God. Last week, as a review, we talked about uh, a couple of things. We talked about how we can believe all the right ways, we can behave all the right ways, but if we don't have bliss in God, if we don't have satisfaction with God, then we can fail to glorify Him. And we learn that satisfaction, it doesn't come from all our things and all our circumstances, but it comes in the very presence of God, in our relationship with Jesus Christ, that the closer we are to Jesus, the more satisfied we'll be in our life. And we ended with that powerful quote from John Piper that says, uh, God is most glorified in us, when we are most satisfied in him. And uh, so we discussed the glory of God in our part one. And in part two, we're going to take a look at an obstacle. An obstacle that stands in the way of us experiencing the blessings of God. An obstacle that stands in the way of us glorifying God. And it has something to do with self-esteem and self-worth. But before we get into the word and we try to unpack it, Let's just, I just ask that you just join me as we pray one more time. Uh, Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have brought us here. And Lord, we want to glorify you in our lives. We don't just want to be successful in the world. We want to be sec- successful in your eyes. And so Father, as we open your word, we ask that you speak to us clearly and that we would hear not the voice of a man, but the voice of your spirit talking to us. This is what we ask in Jesus' name. Let all God's people say. You know, one of the things that I find incomprehensible, almost unbelievable, is the fact that Jesus 
spent 30 years of his life in obscurity. I mean, yes, there was moments at his birth where there was a miracle. There is that glimpse in the temple at the age of 12 where something miraculous seemed to almost happen. But for 30 years, Jesus spent his life unknown, unrecognized, unappreciated for the person that he was. I mean, think about that. God with us, not recognized for 30 years. And then when he did decide that the time had come for fulfillment of Bible prophecy to begin and him to begin his journey as the Messiah and to initiate the plan of salvation, he didn't go to the most popular place to pronounce his inauguration. Uh, We know that he grew up in a small town called Nazareth. But what many people don't know is that just three miles away from him was a town, a city, the regional capital of the area by the name of Sepporis. Right there, just a three-mile walk away from Jesus. Archaeologists have discovered, maybe Dr. Hur here could attest to this better than I could, that they have found a stadium in this uh, place, just three miles away from Nazareth, that can contain about three to 4,000 people, city population to 30 to 40,000 people. And Jesus, he lived just a throw away from there. And when he decided to glorify himself, when he decided to be baptized and to tell everyone the Messiah is on the scene, he didn't go to Sephorus, to a place where there's a grand stadium for everyone to see. He didn't go later on to Tiberias, where the capital had been moved during his lifetime. No, as you can see in the arrow there, he went from Nazareth to the Jordan. Not to a grand stadium, but to a wilderness. It's very interesting that when God chooses to glorify himself, he does it in such the strangest times and in the strangest places. Keep your eyes open for the glory of God in your life because sometimes we expect him on the big stages of life, but often he shows up in the wildernesses of our experience where we don't expect anything good to happen. That's where the glory of God is seen the most. Jesus goes into the wilderness. He encounters John. He's baptized. And we see the glory of God in a way that no creature had ever seen it before. But what's amazing about this story, and we'll get into the tension of it, is that it almost didn't happen. Jesus almost wasn't baptized. Uh, The Bible tells us that if we back up in our minds to Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist is there and he's preparing the way of the Lord. He's preaching to all the people. He's asking them to repent. He's telling them, come to God. And in his discussion, people are looking at John, Desire of Ages tells us, and they say, hey, this guy's powerful. This guy's magnificent. Maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe this is the one we're supposed to look for. And in his conversation about Uh, God and about the Messiah, he says these very fascinating words that stop me in my tracks. He said this. He, speaking about the Christ or the Messiah, the anointed one, who is coming after me, is mightier, some versions say more powerful, some versions say greater, than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. 
Now what struck me is that Jesus later on in Matthew 5 says that John the Baptist was the greatest man ever to be born of a woman. He says you can't get to a higher status than John the Baptist. But yet the greatest man ever to be born of a woman speaks of himself as if he's not worthy to do the menial task of carrying someone's flip-flops. That he's not quite up to par to unstrapping the Velcro of the sandals of Christ. In the Greek, our word is ukhikanos. And it means simply not worthy, not adequate, not considerable, not enough. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt not worthy, not adequate, not considerable, not enough? John sure did. You know, what is uh, even more interesting about this is that in our lives, we can prevent ourselves from experiencing the blessings that God has for us when we don't feel worthy or adequate or considerable or enough. We actually build an obstacle between us and the blessings that God has for us in our lives. Uh, maybe uh, you at one point have not felt enough or good enough. And so when you think about going outside in public, you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, oh, I'm not pretty enough. So you don't look that friend or that neighbor in the eyes when they talk to you. And you wouldn't even dare to ask that person or that man or that woman on a date. Sometimes when we don't feel smart enough, we don't dare to pursue our dreams at an academic institution like a place like Berman University. When we feel like we're not worth enough, we won't go to our boss and say, hey, I need a raise because we feel worthless. And look, I'm not talking about a godly humility. That's, that's a good thing. Godly humility is a good thing. I'm talking about a self-loathing, a low self-esteem, these feelings that no matter what you do, no matter what is done, you just don't feel good enough. And it prevents you from experiencing the blessings of God. So not only do you miss out on material things and friendship and associations, but sometimes you feel so bad that you don't get on your knees to pray because you know God knows what you did this week. You feel so bad about yourself that you don't come to the house of worship. You don't come with your family to praise God and sing and do all these kinds of things because you don't want to be looked at like a hypocrite by your kids because they know how you've been acting all week and how you act in church is a whole different way. You know, the, these feelings of not being enough, not being worthy, not being good enough, they stop us from receiving the blessings that God has for us in our lives. Uh, and they stop us from doing the responsibilities that glorify Him. So maybe you haven't decided to join a small group or lead a small group because you just don't feel good enough. Or you're worried that if you do join it, 
people will know the real you and they won't like you. Uh, I can tell you uh, from experience growing up, especially in a university setting when I decided or I felt like God decided that I should be a pastor, I cannot tell you how many times as a young man I, I thought about quitting. Not because I wasn't smart enough, uh, but because I felt like I wasn't good enough. So many times, at least for me, this was my experience in growing up. I grew up in the States and in Toronto. Uh, that every pastor that I had ever met was so perfect. Everything was fine at all the time. Every Sabbath was happy, no matter how miserable. Every word and every expression of every opinion that ever came out of any pastor's mouth that I heard was so perfect like he was a polished politician. So I looked at myself, and yeah, I loved God. I, you know, I wasn't doing anything crazy, but I was like, I, I can't be good enough like that. Like, I can't do that. Uh, it wasn't until I had a, had a senior pastor who let me know his warts and all. He was vulnerable enough to be open and honest, and he shared with me his character defects, his real thoughts. You've got to watch out, pastors. We've got, we got some problems when, when, you get us, uh, when you get us off guard. Uh, and I learned the truth of that saying in Corinthians that, that God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong, the things that are despised and the things that are not, so that no one may boast in the presence of God. And I learned that no matter how you feel about yourself, no matter how you think about yourself, it should not prevent you from accomplishing the sacred, sacred responsibilities that God has placed in your life. You can't not take on the responsibilities because of how you feel about yourself. But this is what John did. Uh, he said, as Jesus came to him, the Bible says that John tried to prevent him, saying, not good enough. I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me? There's irony here. Please don't miss the irony, because John the Baptist is the one who's meant to prepare the way of the Lord. And yet we find that the man who came to prepare Jesus' way attempted to stop Jesus from his way. He's been spending his whole life preparing the way of the Lord. And then Jesus comes to him for the sole purpose, the Bible says, to be baptized by him. And he stops and he says, wait a second. We can't do this that way. This is not how it's supposed to go. I'm not worthy enough to do this. We need to turn this around. You know, Christians, uh, believers of God, disciples of Jesus, we have a way of trying to tell Jesus what to do, huh? We have a way of trying to prevent Jesus from doing what he wants to do. And especially when it comes to baptism. I have actually come to expect some type of satanic attack on someone who's about to be baptized, guised in religious language, right before every baptism. Maybe you've heard it and haven't recognized it before. Pastor, you can't baptize that person. Don't you know that on Sabbath, so-and-so is still doing that? The words are, they're not holy enough. 
Pastor, you know that they've gone through the Bible studies, but they don't still understand the investigative judgment, and that's a core belief of the Seventh-day Adventist Church? They're saying, Pastor, that person's not smart enough. My favorite. Actually, my least favorite. Pastor, you know that person? That kid who you're trying to baptize, he's only 10 years old. He's only 10 years old. He's not mature enough to have faith like a child. Pastor, you know, that person, he's still struggling with that addiction. He's still working on that thing. Oh, that pastor, that person's not good enough. We are constantly trying to prevent God from doing what he wants in the lives of people. I'm, I've been there. I've said the same words. Uh, but you know, this is not an Adventist problem. I don't want to say, hey, this is just a local denomination problem. This is a church history problem. People from the beginning of Christianity have tried to prevent people, God from baptizing and doing wonderful things. So in 300 AD, there was a group of Christians known as the Donatists. Yeah, and they were really holy. They were really righteous. But they had a problem with a certain class of clergymen because they weren't holy enough. See, during persecution, there were priests who were taken and they were tortured. And because under torture and persecution, they handed out the holy scriptures and they folded to morality and, and gave up people. The Donatists said, look, you fell. You don't have the right to baptize people. You're not holy enough. And that's kind of like John the Baptist. He doesn't want to baptize Jesus because he's not holy enough. Our problem today is, is the reverse where we don't feel good enough to be baptized. I don't know if you're here, if there's anyone still here who hasn't made that step towards Christ because you don't feel good enough, you don't feel smart enough, you don't feel like you know enough, you don't feel like you're holy enough. But I'm here to tell you, look, baptism isn't a recognition that you're any of those things. Baptism is a recognition that you need Jesus. Because you don't have any of those things. We allow ourselves to have this obstacle to receive not just material blessings, but the blessings of God in our life when we don't feel good enough. But the story gets more interesting. Because he not only tries to prevent Jesus from doing what he wants to do, he then turns the tables on Jesus and tries to hint towards Jesus what he should do. So look, Jesus, we're not going to baptize you but I have, a def I have a better plan. I need to be baptized by you. You came here to be baptized by me. Good idea. You don't know how bad I am. Let me come up with a better idea. You need to baptize me. You know, when we don't feel worthy in the presence of God, we try to settle for less than what God wants to give us. Think of the story of the prodigal son just for a moment. He left his father. He took the inheritance. He squandered it on righteous living. Then he comes back to the father. You remember the words. And he says, Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please hire me as a servant. When we don't feel worthy, we don't only block the blessings of God, but even as we talk to God, we try to settle for less than what God has to give to us. 
And what we don't recognize is that this, in a way, distorts the glory of God. I try to come up with an illustration. Hopefully it helps. That's me, seven years ago. Do I look the same or do I look different? That's what my friends say. They say, look, you haven't aged a day. It comes back to hurt me in some ways. But this is my dog. His name is Kobe. I love that dumb dog. And I'll tell you, he's a dumb dog. I love him. And I tried my best to train him the way the dog whisperer, Caesar, Norman, some guy on, uh, on the internet tells you to train your dog. Uh, you know, I taught him how to, to use the potty in all the right places. Check, was able to do that. Taught him how to sit. You know, it's so cute when dogs sit. He learned how to sit. Even taught him how to roll over, you know, when they roll over. <laughs> I like having the dogs roll over. Uh, I taught him how to jump, too, because he's named after a basketball player, Kobe. So he had to learn how to jump. He could jump. He could sit. He could roll over. He could stay. He could do all these things. But there was one thing I couldn't get him not to do. One thing. I couldn't get him. It's kind of an important thing. I couldn't get him not to bite anyone. <laughs> Small, itsy-bitsy problem, right? Uh, he would just bite people friend of mine would come over, he'd bite him in the hand, a lady would come over with a jacket to our family like gathering, he'd bite her on the side. And I was like, okay, I'm trying, I'm trying. I'd try to do these weird things where you put a dog down and you, and you kind of hold them and kind of try to dominate him so he's scared of you and everyone so he doesn't do anything. That didn't work. I tried to put my hand in his mouth and kind of hold it there so that every time he bit it hurt him. That didn't work. Uh, all these crazy things you try. The thing that I found out that I thought worked is I had a water gun, like a little pistol, and I would, I would squirt it at his face whenever he'd bite. But uh, I thought it worked, but he's just scared of water. It didn't work. Nothing seemed to work. And eventually, uh, he just got out of control so much to the point that one day, as people were coming into our house, he turned around in some kind of excitement and fear, and he bit Amy <laughs> right on her thigh. And not like just a little bite, like a, like a big bite. And the worst thing about it is that I loved him so much, when I found out, I looked at Amy, I said, what did you do? <laughs> that was a mistake. You don't do that. <laughs> you don't do that. Um, decisive to say that that dog no longer lives in our home. But I got him to my parents' home, so he's still in the family. <laughs> um, yeah, but what I'm trying to illustrate about this is that when you see a bad dog or you see a bad child, there's, not, there's no such thing as a bad child, but a misbehaving child, your tendency is not to think, that's a bad dog or that's a bad kid. Your tendency is to look at the owner or the parent and say, what's wrong with you? Isn't that what we do? And when we have a poor self-esteem, when we have this poor self-image, when we think about ourselves in a negative way, we inadvertently distort God's glory because you and I were created in the image of God. And the closest thing on this planet to the image of God is you. And when you think poorly about yourself, in some kind of way, you begin to think poorly about God. I have it here that a poor self-image distorts God's image. 
a poor self-image distorts God's image. God, you know that I uh, have struggled with being patient at home. There's no way you can give me victory in my family. You know, God, I'm not very smart. There's no way you can help me graduate. God, you know that I'm addicted to this and that. There's no way you can set me free. God, you know what I did. There's no way you can use me. See, a poor self-image distorts God's image. But we have to come to the place in our lives where we either choose to obey God or to obey our feelings about ourselves. We have to choose to indulge in our self-loathing or to choose to follow what God wants for us in our life. Thankfully, in our story, when John is put to it, uh, he follows what Jesus says over what his own feelings say. Jesus, but Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, John, allowed him, Jesus, to be baptized. When we give in to God and not into our own feelings of self-worth, we are taking part in the fulfillment of righteousness. And in this scene, in our story today, we see a picture of God that has not been seen in all of the history. That as John does not go with his feelings, but he goes with the commandments of Christ, he plunges Jesus into the water. And Jesus comes up out of the water. And we see a heavenly vision. And we hear a heavenly voice. We see the glory of God in a way that has never been seen before because John decides not to go with his feelings, but to go with what Jesus has commanded. The Bible says that the Spirit of God descended on Jesus. That same Spirit that had descended millennia ago over the unformed waters of the earth that hovered over the planet before it was formed began to hover over Christ. That same light that had once brought existence to this dark place began to light upon Jesus. And that same voice that had once spoken the world into existence now reveals a different aspect of the glory of God that had never been heard. When with the voice of God we hear these words, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You know, I got up this morning to tell you just really one simple thing. That what is in Jesus, what Jesus has, is also yours. That you are his sons, that you are his heirs. And that in God's eyes, just as he was pleased with Jesus, he's pleased with you. That you're good enough, that you're smart enough, that you're worthy enough, that you're worth enough that to God he's delighted in you. He loves you. He's happy with you. And it's not because of the things that you do. It's not because of the things that you believe. It's simply because you're his son and his daughter. You see, Jesus, these words 
this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. God was pleased with Jesus before he ever turned water into wine, before he ever walked on water, before Jesus ever preached a powerful sermon, before Jesus healed the lame, cast out demons, healed the blind, before Jesus had felt a multitude of thousands, before Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, before Jesus did anything worth any recognition, worth any accomplishment, God looked down from heaven and said, You're my son, and I'm pleased with you. And dear church, God's saying the same thing to you and I today. I'm pleased with you. You're worthy. You're beautiful. I made you in my image. I knit you together in your mother's womb. You're more than enough. You cost me everything. You're everything I care about. And now, dear church, the appeal is very simple. It's just time to start looking at yourself the way God sees you. You need to look at yourself as worthy, as good, as wonderful, as powerful, as beautiful, because that's the way God looks at you. And in Christ, all those things are yours. Thank you for listening. God bless you. In closing this morning, let's uh, turn to uh, hymnals 183. For those that would like the screen, you can have it on the screen. And uh, stand with us as we sing together. I will sing of Jesus' love.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you love us. And we are so grateful that when you look at each and every one of us, you say, man, that's my son, that's my daughter, I take delight in them. Lord, we ask for your special blessing this week that you would transform our minds and that the way you delight in us, we would delight in ourselves and in you. So Lord, bless your people this week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.